Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, policies and events that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I am Director of ECFR and today we're going to do a podcast on referenda. The Dutch government suffered an embarrassing defeat on Wednesday as voters overwhelmingly rejected an EU deal with Ukraine with over 60% voting no. The turnout was over 30%, which was the threshold needed to send the issue back to the parliament. And the vote was not just seen as a test of public opinion on Ukraine, but rather a wider judgment on the state of the European Union. As soon as the results started coming out, the Eurosceptic MEP Nigel Farage, who is the, the leader of the uh, Euro, uh, the far-right UK Independence Party in Britain, tweeted his support for the result. Dutch exit polls seem to indicate big no to EU vote. Hooray, he said. And Gert Wilders, the Dutch uh, populist politician also said that if the Dutch people vote no today, it will be an incentive for the British voters to say no. So to make sense of this, we have a podcast in two halves. The first half is a Dutch discussion where we have three very interesting speakers. The first one is Michiel van Houten, who is one of the leaders of the Dutch Yes campaign. Before that, he had a career in Dutch politics as a member of the European Parliament and chair of the Dutch Labour Party. He uh, is talking to me at the very end of a long campaign and the recording is slightly scratchy as uh, we had to do it by Skype. Second up is Beatrice de Graaf, who is a council member of ECFR and a professor of the history of international relations at the University of Utrecht. And finally, we have Dick Osting, my colleague at ECFR, who's sitting here with me in London uh, he's the CEO of ECFR, based in London, but is a Dutch national and actually voted in the referendum. And for the second half of the podcast, I will be talking to Sam Coates, the deputy political editor of The Times, about the British referendum campaign. So, Beatrice, you've been following Dutch uh, foreign policy and international relations for a, a long time. What do you think the significance of the vote is? How do you read it? Know what to say about 
this policy area. So it's not that they had a strong opinion or expression on the Ukraine or on the treaty. They just either didn't know or they didn't like the referendum. That's why they stayed at home. So, Dick, I hope you don't mind me revealing this on the podcast, but we were talking about it earlier and, and you did decide to vote in the end and, and voted in favour of it. What do you think um, happens now? What does the result mean both for the government but also for the for the rest of the European Union? Uh, well, there's so many aspects to it and, and Michiel and, uh, and, and Beatrice already touched on quite a few of them. I mean, at the, at the sort of immediate uh, substantive level of this Ukraine treaty that was put to the test, uh, the government now, uh, having sort of uh, the, 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 the coalition parties in government, having more or less said that they cannot ignore it if the threshold was, was, was made, which was just about uh, the case, uh, they'll have to somehow uh, find a fix uh, to to the treaty um, uh, that's sort of technically quite complicated, but there are some 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 thoughts and, and, and ideas how that could be done, and where Mark Rutter has a reasonable amount of credit among his uh, his, his colleagues in, in in Europe, there's an expectation that if he plays it smartly and he is quite smart at these things, uh, the, the sort of the the technical fix can be found. It won't make anyone happy either in Europe or in the Netherlands in the in the pro or the or the or the or the no camps. Um, but that's the sort of the Ukraine referendum thing. I agree with Beatrice that this should not be read as a sort of overwhelming Dutch uh, new uh, expression of, of, of Euroscepticism any more than we already had five, no, what was it, 2005, yeah, 11 2005, years ago when yeah. the referendum was voted down, the uh, constitution at the time. Um, it, is, it is a sort of a constant in, 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 in Dutch politics and public life that you have this sort of Euroscepticism, which can easily manifest itself uh, when nothing much seems to be at stake, um, and either people went to vote or didn't vote because they probably felt that there wasn't all that much uh, in, in, in the game anyway. If at some point there were to be the kind of referendum that the Brits are going to have here in this country, I'm in, I'm in London here, um, on, on, on yes or no in the EU, uh, it would probably be a different matter in the Netherlands. On the other hand, it. Well, you it, think people <clears throat> vote to stay in? Probably, yeah. But it will be interesting to see how the government. It's the government now that has to respond to this. It's not Parliament as such in, in, in immediately, as I've understood the technicalities. Um, but there are sort of uh, discussions already starting, or they started already before the uh, before the before Wednesday, whether this whole referendum law as such is 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 a good idea, or whether the way it's been it's been framed with the threshold, etc., at, at that sort of low level is a good idea. The whole democracy debate is 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 going to sort of kick off in a new phase, I would imagine. Uh, but the government is probably right uh, to take a little bit of time to try and, and, and work this one through. There are so many, so many different uh, 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 motives, emotions, etc., in all of this that it, it, it would it would make sense to uh, uh, to disentangle that a little bit and to see whether within Parliament, where it's indeed clear that uh, that it's the, the 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 farther right and the farther left that are united around this sort of no. Uh, campaign against the against the Ukraine treaty and against the EU, how the middle ground in Parliament can sort of re realign themselves uh, with a a construct constructive and positive narrative uh, around these things. Michiel, I'm we've known each other for quite a long time, and and you've um, both been uh, pushing for 
the EU to get more in touch with its citizens. But also over the years, you've tended to be quite enthusiastic about referendums as a way of legitimating the EU. How has this has this campaign changed your view about that at all? How do you see the role of referenda in terms of um, the legitimacy of the, the EU project? Yes, I mean, as a, as a general rule, I believe that referendums are a good way either to get public backing for major changes to our constitutional setup, uh, such as the constitutional treaty in 2005, uh, certainly the way it was perceived, uh, or as a sort of emergency break that citizens can use to uh, to block a law that Parliament has already adopted and that they think is is uh, unjust or wrong or uh, you know shouldn't have been passed. The, the the problem with this particular referendum law and and Beatrice already alluded to this is that it was it sent out the wrong signal in terms of whether or not people should go and vote. Um, it was advisory, uh, so the implication was that that, uh, that the government would not necessarily be bound by it. But at the same time, it had a validity threshold of 30%, meaning that if more than 30% of voters voted, the referendum was valid. And it's very hard to reconcile those two. How can something where you have a validity threshold uh, uh, still, you know, not only be advisory if if more than um, the people number of people required to go and vote. So uh, we spent basically, and this is the the, the 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 core problem of our campaign, the of the yes campaign. We effectively had to fight two campaigns. We had to fight one campaign to persuade people to vote in favour, and we had to fight a second campaign to persuade people to go vote at all. Uh, a lot of yes supporters uh, stayed at home. Uh, a lot of yes supporters in the media. Uh, in politics, you know, spoke out publicly uh, and called on people not to go and vote. Uh, and at the same time, the, the no campaign, you know, had had a completely free reign. They were able to focus on the message, uh, their negative message, uh, the lies that they spread about what was in this treaty. Uh, and and so for us, it was very hard to to counter that. So yes, referendums absolutely, but this particular referendum law is flawed. And luckily, I'm, I'm happily. Uh, most parties in the Netherlands, including, uh, by the way, uh, the No Camp, uh, are saying that the law needs to be changed. So, um, what could happen uh, in terms of changing the law? You think that they they might remove the threshold, or they might stop the idea that people can uh, just collect signatures? How many signatures do you need to connect to? to Three hundred thousand. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the signatures are the issue. I mean, people yeah. are complaining that it's too easy to collect the signatures. There's an app, you can you, you can do it electronically. Uh, you know, as, as long as those signatures can be verified, uh, I, I, I welcome that uh, as, as a way of making uh, democracy more accessible. But I think you have to choose. Either you have an advisory referendum with no threshold, or you have a binding referendum with a threshold. There is no uh, sufficient support in Dutch politics for a binding referendum at the moment. Uh, it requires a change to the constitution. That change, that support just isn't there at the moment. So uh, the obvious way to go would be to have an advisory referendum without a uh, without a threshold. Okay. Sorry, Beatrice, do you want do you want to add something? Yeah, the point is that the whole debate on uh, the referendum as such, I think, impacts a, a, a deeper line problem, which is that democracy is turned into something that is more similar to what Pierre Rosa Vallon once described as counter-democracy. So it's not longer Habermas 
where you have informed citizens debating and getting themselves to better solutions and suggestions mm. and advice. It's party democracy, it's counter-democracy. At the moment in the Netherlands, there's a debate of a huge talk show star in the Netherlands who has collected enough signatures to uh, uh, ask for himself the title of Pharaoh of the Netherlands. And there's new talk, a new referendum on uh, the Black Peter in the Dutch discussion, what colour he should have. So What's the Black, here, for, for non-Dutch people, what's the Black Peter? St Nicholas's helper. It's Nicholas's helper in the Netherlands, who is still very much tainted with our colonial and slavery past, and he's painted black, um, which okay. has attracted a lot of uh, disgust from the United Nations and from all other foreign countries, okay. and it's still uh, very much in the So that, that's, a, that's an important issue, you, oh. where you were talking about it, so maybe it sounded like it was trivial at the beginning, but I can now see... No, that's very referenda speaks to the debate on the European Union Euroscepticism because it's a very gratifying policy area in which to leash out against the elites, against yeah. the establishment. Because uh, they are all in favour of the European Union. Most of the, the majority of the Dutch population is in favour of remaining within the EU, but it's a very gratifying subject to uh, turn into a protest uh, issue and to yeah, attract attention from all over the world to the Netherlands now, perhaps to Britain later on. And I think it's it's signaling a problem that just implementing the instrument of a referendum does play into the hands of this movement of counter-democracy, party democracy, yeah. and elites and governments haven't found a solution yet as how to tackle that, because it's not uh, informed by knowledge, it's not informed by rational arguments, it's something totally different. And the original idea of the Labour Party in the Netherlands, of D66, it's the party that invented the whole idea of the referenda, was that it would lead to better solutions and more basic participation in democracy. What we see that it's being hijacked, taken hostage by elements in society that do this for their own interest, for their own, well, whatever interest they have. Uh, at hand, but not to improve the rational debate and argument in the sense of the Habermas public opinion. It's funny, I, I remember going to um, The Hague in 2005, uh, around the time of your referendum there, and a very senior Dutch diplomat uh, talked to me about how we were witnessing the democratic destruction of the European Union. Um, but... Uh, what there you do this whole idea of counter democracy or what uh, is also being kind of described by um, uh, Francis Fukuyama as a as kind of vetocracy that it's very easy for people to throw spanners in the works of, of different systems. What happens to the EU, which is based on compromise on backroom deals between different governments, where you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, and in the end everyone kind of wins out, but you need to have, to have a bit of give and take. If um, uh, it can be opened up to, to referenda on different things and, and people find it easy to, to block things, Dick. Um, and specifically interesting on, on this kind of question about the Ukraine deal, because one of the really striking things about this referendum is that the stakes for Dutch people are so low. It's not like the British referendum where if you vote to leave the European Union, there'll be direct consequences for, for, for the British economy and for British citizens. Yeah. Whereas here... Um, it's the Ukrainians who will suffer uh, any consequences rather than the Dutch. That's right, yeah. Um, well, 
As said, I mean, there are technical fixes to for, for, for the government to take the results of this referendum into account, quote-unquote. Um, but when it comes to how how do you how do you um, uh, reconcile the, the 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 method of operation as you describe it um, of the European Union with direct voter participation, particularly when it has this sort of negative streak that, that Beatrice talked about, the, and you refer to as vitocracy. Um, it's very difficult to, to to reconcile that, and I think that merits a, a discussion as such. Um, and that has to has to happen obviously at the national level. There's no point in having sort of the the lamentations at European level in the European Parliament, etc., about how the citizen doesn't understand and we have to explain better. That I think is is is, is a closed road. That that has been tried. It hasn't worked. It really has to happen at the at at, at the national level to see how your own interests. And I, I would say. Um, uh, on on Beatrice just now that it's not just a question of people sort of pursuing uh, their own interests because that in itself is a legitimate way of of, of expressing yourself in a de democratic system. It's also the way how your 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 particular interests are weighed in a larger whole, and this is I think where again for an organization like ECFR it will be important to sort of sketch why it is important for Europeans to pull together on some of these key aspects because what has really motivated the No Camp. Uh, apart from sort of uh, trying to rabble rouse and, 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 and be contrary and, and, and do negative about the EU, is also playing on the gen genuine fear of uh, a big country coming in that is corrupt, of um, uh, open the, opening the gates to military cooperation with Ukraine and, 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 and causing even more problems with Russia, etc., etc. That larger security perspective, I think, is one that has been that has been neglected here. And Dick, um, I'd like to come back to you, Michiel, to, to get some of your bigger lessons. But before we do that, um, what do you think the next range of issues are? I mean, Beatrice mentioned some maybe slightly less geopolitical issues that there might be referendum on. <laughs> but are there other ways that the Dutch voters could could try and... Um... Well, they're already on 70,000, I read this morning, signatures uh, to start a referendum on TTIP, the, uh, the Transatlantic uh, Trade uh, Partnership. Uh, that has also caused a lot of controversy in, in the Netherlands and, and Europe-wide, uh, for that matter. So the next one's already there, and there's a Canadian treaty in, in, in the works that's also coming to Parliament soon. That might actually be the first one, therefore. So uh, the, the, the cat is out of the bag. Uh, Michiel, maybe to round off our, our discussion, it'd be great to hear both what kind of lessons you took away from this for yourself in terms of how to, to, to run referendum campaigns. And particularly, you spent quite a lot of time in Britain and you come over here quite a lot. Have you got any uh, tips for Will Straw and the people who are running the, the Remain campaign um, uh, in the UK based on your recent experiences? Um, well, just, just one comment on the, the issue of future referendums in the Netherlands, because I think uh, before people think that we're going to have referendums on the whole range of issues, the, the law, the, the referendum law only allows referendums to take place on issues which Parliament has already voted on uh, before they enter into effect. So it's it's not the case that we can have a referendum on Black Peter or on the Faroe of the Netherlands, even though people might like to have a referendum on that. There are still uh, uh, certain restrictions on what you can hold a vote on. Uh, but you know, having said that, uh, well, what what's going what can be learned from it? I think, in a sense, the UK is in a better position because the referendum law in the UK is very straightforward. Uh, it's either remain or leave. 
there's no strategic voting involved. Uh, you know, if you want to stay in, you have to stay in. If you want to vote uh, in, and if you want to leave, you have to vote leave. Uh, it's as simple as that. Um, I, I think what uh, played a big role in this campaign and was a problem for us, in addition to the stra strategic voting issue, was uh, the the trolling on internet. I mean, there was clearly a large uh, influence from outside factors. It's very hard to pinpoint who they are, but our own website was hacked by uh, hackers, from, uh, which which we sourced to China. Uh, there was clearly a big presence of Russian-inspired trolls on online, uh, and these people had a big impact on the uh, on the debate. And I think uh, it's important, uh, you know, for the Remain camp to be uh, aware of that as well, because Russia has an interest not just in uh, blocking Ukrainian deals with Europe; it also wants to destabilize the EU as a whole. Uh, and uh, Brexit would be a, a, another gift to Putin. So I think it's important to be aware of what is going on online in the background that may be influencing this uh, this debate uh, in, a, in a way that uh, British voters would not want uh, to be the case. So the other referendum that European policymakers are talking about is the British referendum. It's a while since we checked in on how that's going and very happy to be joined again by Sam Coates, who is the deputy political editor of The Times. And he's been watching these things very closely. Sam, tell us how the referendum campaign is going. Well, I think that this week we've seen the outward signs of how Manning Street are feeling about the whole thing, which is incredible nervousness uh, and uh, proceeding extremely uh, uh, sort of uh, aggressively as part of the camp to try and uh, win this thing for the Remain camp, but without any certainty that they're going to do so. What we've got at the moment is a situation where, broadly speaking, the polls are neck and neck. Um, speaking to pollsters today, they're terrified about that. They know. Um, that uh, uh, that puts them in a very precarious situation. It'd be very easy to get this one wrong. Um, you're within the margin of error. You'd had an ICM poll, I think it was this morning, that had remained on 51, leave on 49. Once you excluded the date, knows. Um, we've had others that are broadly speaking along that along along that line. Um, although some people, like Linton Crosby off the back of the Telegraph on a Monday, suggest that Remain is edging ahead. I think everything remains within the margin of error and it's too close to call. And indeed, there remains, when you look at the polling, this big difference between telephone polling and online polling, and there are big and, frankly, rather unpleasant arguments going on between pollsters as to why that is and which one is right, with the in-campaign believing firmly that the uh, telephone polls, which put them ahead, uh, uh, are, the, are, are more likely to have credibility, uh, but there have been plenty of other internet pollsters, including YouGov, which we use here at the Times, uh, who would uh, who would who would say the reverse? So, um, what does that tell you? It tells you that it's very close. It would appear to be very close from the polls, but nobody um, uh, is attaching too much confidence to them after last year's general election. Um, this year, this week in Downing Street has been marked by the release of uh, the announcement that they're going to do next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, a leaflet drop to uh, initially. Um, Householders England, and then uh, after next month's elections, uh, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland as well. Uh, this is a nine million pound um, uh, public sort of leg up to the Remain campaign. They're spending nine million quid uh, on a leaflet and some social media advertising and a website. Um, I know because I talked to them, the Downing was extremely nervous about the way that this was going to unfold. Rightly so, because every single Tory who doesn't support. Um, Britain uh, staying within the European Union um, was likely to indeed have become 
uh, furious and outraged at the way that the government is spending what they would characterise as propaganda, uh, money on propaganda. So why do you think that um, the polls have been so stubbornly refusing to, uh, to shift? Because I think one of the hopes of the government was that once they came out in favour of staying in, there would be a big bounce for the Remain side. Um, I'm not sure that they thought that there would be a big bounce um, for the Remain side at the, at the point at which the, the, the yeah, EU deal, the renegotiation deal, uh, was was done. I think the, the brutal reality is that uh, a lot of people are stubbornly refusing, at least when it comes to pollsters, uh, uh, to acknowledge that they're particularly engaging in this uh, in in this debate. I think that if you talk to people around the country, we've done a bit of that. People still say that they haven't got enough information. Uh, they still say that they don't know what they're going to do. That they're disengaged. Some people aren't even aware that there's a referendum. Underway, I think that um, people expect proper focus on this referendum uh, two, three, or four weeks out from it. And um, don't forget, we've got in Britain another set of elections still to come before we get to the referendum because you've got these big uh, uh, sort of um, uh, the Scottish, Welsh, Northern Ireland, London, and some local elections on May the 5th. And um, to be honest, quite a lot of party political firepower is particularly Labour's past political firepower, is going on trying to win those rather than to concentrate yet on the European referendum. So there's still, for those of us in the West of the bubble, it might feel like we're doing Europe, Europe, Europe the entire time. But there's still a, a several further gears that this campaign can go before it's at full tim and, and, and the public are properly engaged there. So we've had a few skirmishes on some of the, the big issues that are going on. How, who, who do you think has won them? We had, there was one after the Brussels terrorist attacks about whether it's safer to be inside or outside of the European Union. There was a question about the closure of um, the steelworks in Port Talbot, whether um, that's Europe's fault or the, or the Westminster government's fault. Now I suppose there's another uh, volley about um, uh, the Panama Papers, whether that's... Um, uh, and how, who do you think is winning uh, these different issues as they break out into the news agenda? I don't, I, I, the three items that you talk about, I don't think any of them have made any kind of material difference on the outcome of the referendum. And indeed, it's hard to say that one side decisively won in any of them. The, the problem is now, everything that hits the news agenda, every political matter that hits the news agenda is then appropriated by both sides of the uh, uh, referendum campaign um, who release a, 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 a sort of assertions complaint combined with partial facts to say that whatever has just happened proves that their side of the argument is right. And whether it's greatest security cooperation proves you need to be in Europe in order to stop terrorist attacks or that being in Europe opens the floodgates to people getting in uh, 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 through Turkey, uh, through Europe, and into, in, allows people to come into Britain who perhaps shouldn't be, and um, uh, uh, with a view to committing crimes against British people. Um, you hear these arguments, they cancel each other out. There's no, there is no definitive right answer, uh, frankly, to um, any of those questions. And so I, I, I suspect that... Um, people in the end just to start tuning out because they hear they hear strong argue, shouty arguments on both sides. Um, I think there are certain issues um, that could start to turn this. And I think if, if there was a sustained narrative that uh, 
people will be able to come into this country um, uh, under the guise of EU immigration, uh, uh, and um, uh, and there was any evidence that that was undermining uh, uh, safety, security, and increasing and, and allowing uh, and, and increasing terrorism. I think that that was. You know, if the migrant crisis could be linked to either uh, crime or terrorism in any sustained and significant and credible way, that something like that could shift public opinion. Um, there is an there is an underlying nervousness in the British public about the numbers of people uh, uh, that have been able to enter the country in the last decade, and at points at which um, that debate has come to the fore, um, public support for the European Union has dropped. You've seen that quite clearly in the polls over the last five years. There are moments where that debate uh, has come to the fore, uh, support for, the Europe, for, for staying in the EU does decline. So I think Downing Street is nervous that um, you get either um, uh, a, a widespread debate about um, uh, net migration figures, um, asylum or refugees. So, so who do you think is winning the economic argument? So I think that um, the one tactic that does um, has been shown to work, or the polling suggests work in this uh, works in this referendum campaign, is um, uh, running a sort of fear campaign, and this is what the Remain side have so far succeeded in doing better than the Leave side. Uh, for about the last six weeks, David Cameron, Will Straw's uh, stronger, uh, better, stronger in campaign, and supporters of staying in Europe have basically been saying. If you leave the European Union, there will be a, a period of uncertainty, potential short-term economic shocks, um, and, uh, and then a longer-term period of instability while Britain feels its way to new relationships with uh, uh, 27 uh, EU countries. And um, suggesting that that might have an um, impact um, uh, on people's pockets does seem to have been uh, broadly successful in, um, in, 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 in maintaining the um, remain share of the vote. However, um, I would fully expect that the uh, Leave side to sharpen up some of their uh, kind of fear arguments about the instability of the European Union project itself, given problems with the single currency, given problems with uh, the refugee crisis, uh, and given um, the general uncertainty surrounding Greece. And um, they need to be able to present Europe as a project that's unstable and likely to try and deal with its own problems by further integration that Britain will be caught up in. Thank you very much to all of you. There are links up to some of the things we've been writing about both the British referendum and the Dutch referendum on our website, which is at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. So from Michiel van Houten, Beatrice de Graaf, Dick Osting, Sam Coates and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Katharina Botel-Azzinaro. <laughs>